Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast show. In today's episode, we will take a pulse check on our industry. The language translation and localization industry has withstood many challenges and disasters in the past. And if anything, the demand for language services increased during past economic crises. My guest is Andrew Smart, who is a co-founder and commercial director of Slater, the leading source of news and research for the global language industry. He has an extensive background in web development, delivering solutions for multinationals like Levi Strauss, Credit Suisse, and Volkswagen, as well as in publishing, building business communities, for the Economist Group, Fairfax Media, and Thomson Reuters. Andrew has brought this experience to build Slater with co-founder Florian Faze. Andrew, welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast show. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you. So I, I hear you're in Asia. Whereabouts are you right now? I'm currently based in Bangkok with my wife, uh, who's from Singapore. I was uh, living in Singapore for the better part of the last 25 years. Okay. Well, let me ask you, how's the situation there now with all these lockdown craziness and everything? How are you managing Uh, We're managing well. Uh, They had a full lockdown and international travel bans are still pretty much in effect, but uh, the economy has otherwise largely opened up. It looks to be a lot more open than, you know, what the USA is uh, experiencing, but perhaps not as open as uh, Europe. Okay, well, I hope everyone's safe and well there. Uh, Let me jump right into my first question about our uh, our topic of the day, which is the health of the industry, which is a lot, nice segue to get started. Let's begin with learning about how you came into the translation and localization space. Tell us how things got started for you. Well, actually, it was about six years ago. I was working at Thomson Reuters, uh, managing a community for lawyers called Asian Legal Business. And, and Florian was actually at CL, uh, CLS at the time, right. uh, which was later acquired by Lionbridge. And, and he was targeting the legal community. We actually struck a, an innovative cash and contra deal where they also helped translate our magazine in China. And we got to know each other through that. And, and then he mentioned and he identified this gap of this type of service in the language industry. Absolutely. So that's how we uh, got together to do Slater. Yeah, yeah, and Slater has become a popular name in, in the industry. I, personally, I'm a big fan of it. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. And uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what do you find most useful for you in, in your daily work? Data and information that comes from Slater, I find it to be uh, somewhat unbiased compared to what the data was coming in previously from other sources. So I can tell that it's a better representative of reality. That's what I find useful. Well, I'm really delighted to hear that. Uh, that's what we wanted to do. Uh, previously, I had worked you know, in the Economist Group and, and Fairfax Media and some of these more old-fashioned, uh, if you will, media models with a separation of church and state. And and that can be a difficult line to walk uh, in these times. So we wanted to try and introduce that. I'm glad it's been well received. Absolutely. Not to get sidetracked, but in the past, we've had uh, these outlets that provide services for you, strategic services, and at the same time, they provide data. And you don't know if that data is reliable, uh, how much it's biased towards a specific provider and so forth. So what comes from Slater is very refreshing, actually. I find it, uh, as a business person, very useful and, and applicable to what I do on a daily basis. Excellent. Well, I'm really, really pleased to hear that because uh, at the end of the day it's it's news we want you to be able to use uh, as well as the research and we're trying to provide it in digestible uh, sizes and and prices uh, to help really the serve the smaller and medium-sized language service providers as much as the larger ones let's get back to the main line of conversation here so you yes. have deep background in the financial and investment industry from what I understand yet you also have diverse experience with media and information services how do they all tie in together with localization and translation? Well, you know, to be honest, it's not a a career path I ever would have imagined at at the beginning of my career. I'm actually, uh, uh, I have an MBA in finance and investments, and I I started off as a stock market analyst. And I really enjoyed looking at different industries and their industry models and how different companies are performing in different parts of the world and who's doing well and why. But, you know, I was here in Asia when the Asian financial crisis blew up. uh, And so I had to transfer those analytical skills into other industries. And at the time, web development was in its early stages, and I got involved using these skills, looking at the business models and trying to help provide digital 
solutions. Right. Uh, after we sold the company I had joined um, to Merce Data, the IT arm of Merceland, uh, I got involved in business media, and, and I really have enjoyed building these business communities. So the common thread is probably both you know the analysis of different industries and what drives them and the people in them as well. And, and I have also really enjoyed the networking. So uh, the networking that is involved in these business communities, the exchange of ideas, uh, that's something else I, I truly enjoy. I truly enjoy the same things. Uh, from what I understand, you were involved in building business communities for the likes of Economist, Fairfax Media, and Thomson Reuters, right? Tell me a little bit about that. How did that happen? And, and exactly how did you build these communities? How we can apply that in the localization industry? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you usually have uh, different industries that have different requirements, and, right. and, and there are people who are there to serve them. Um, what, I, what I find so fascinating about the localization industry is, in, in some sense, its agency model, and it's also incredibly complex. Um, but the community here is also highly engaged and very collaborative. So, you know, when it first all started, uh, I was in the enterprise IT space, and I was an enterprise IT publisher with Fairfax Media. And so when you look at something like enterprise IT, it's actually embedded deeply in different ways in every single industry. Um, and so you start to see how different companies in different industries start to apply uh, the same technology, but in different ways and for different purposes and, and for with different results. To be honest, before I met Florian, I, I had never really realized that the translation, the localization industry was also embedded in this way across every single industry. And it's, it's really fascinating. It's a hidden industry, a lot more complex. I mean, the, the challenges that have faced this industry in terms of adoption and automation are, are much more challenging than, than, say, at the ad agency world of the past or even common enterprise IT solutions and the, and the whole shift to cloud computing. Things are moving so fast that sometimes it's even hard to keep track of. Uh, I mean, if you notice right now, uh, machine translation is a big trend, but there are things beyond that now that's making news every day. Uh, I just saw that you published a news on uh, some sort of a data breach in our industry, and that's not covered as much. So people are distracted, and I guess we need more and more of that information out there. Well, we're, we're trying to do our best. We, we survey, you know, hundreds of uh, different uh, news sources and, and other pieces of information every day to try and filter out what is most relevant. And, and so we try to add value to the, the most important events of the day. Uh, sometimes these are financial results. Sometimes these are data breaches. Sometimes they're acquisitions. But but you're right. There's there's just a tremendous amount of information out there. Filtering it down and, and trying to focus is, is the first challenge. And, and that's what we're here to try and help. But it is a big task. Tell me, how is the overall health of the translation localization industry today as you see it? Well, um, in, in some ways, perhaps this is a, is a healthy test. Uh, there's been many years of, of steady growth in the industry, and uh, it's been a good thing. Um, however, uh, I, I think, you know, when you look at this external shock that's happened, uh, you know, and, and the biggest one probably since 2008, um, it's really making the industry look at itself and see what excesses might be there, what technologies can enhance your competitiveness, and, and what other ways can you better serve your customers. At the same time, when there's there's other kinds of, of pressures, perhaps uh, cost pressures um, or, you know, your clients asking uh, to renegotiate. But overall, um from what we hear and what I see, the, the initial shock of you know March, April, and May seems to, to be over. There has been a better recorded return to not quite normalcy in June and July, much greater uh, activity. And I've also seen anecdotally greater hiring in the job ads on LinkedIn in, in uh, July, late July and early August. Um, so I think, you know, uh, as we are here in this in the third quarter you know, people are really looking to get back to working and get on with it and and renew activity so uh, it's i wouldn't say it's quite a hundred percent to where we were at, at the beginning of the year but you know it's it's probably 70 or 80 percent at least um i mean it, it really does depend you know who you are and uh, which part of the industry and there are of course some lsps reporting growth uh, and that's very encouraging others which we'll probably get into a bit later um you know, are, are struggling a bit more. So we, we can we can drill a bit deeper in this for some of the nuance. But overall, I, I think, you know, the industry has a, a, a very positive medium and, and long-term outlook. And I, and I think the, the prospects of returning to growth in 2021 are, are there, they're real. And, and certainly on a two to three year view, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of reason for optimism. So the biggest threat and possibly one of the biggest opportunities is the current pandemic. How do you interpret that for our industry going forward? There are shocks and, and, and they come 
Uh, and the pandemic itself, you know, it, it really can squeeze out excess. I mean, if you look at the housing bubble of 2008, that's that's an example of squeezing out excess. But it also tends to accelerate trends, uh, particularly trends like the adoption of, you know, cloud computing solutions. And you also touched on earlier uh, in, in terms of the look for innovation on new technologies that can be um, used in, in ways that, you know, perhaps people hadn't thought about. And so we've seen, you know, companies like... Uh, AI media in in Australia going for uh, a listing. Uh, we, we've seen um, other companies are looking at interpretation solutions that have have benefited quite well from the pandemic. Right. Uh, and and you you also have you know other solutions in terms of dubbing, cloud dubbing. Uh, you know recently Zoo spoke at uh, SlaterCon Remote, and, and so there are there there's a lot of innovation going on right here. So uh, as much as this may test us in the short term, um, the, it could very well be a slingshot for future growth. And that's natural evolution from any crisis, basically. Some things uh, fall off and, and there are new things that get added to, to it. So you work with information and data coming in from the industry and even from outside. Andrew, what does that tell you at this point? Are there potential turbulence that the data shows coming towards the translation industry? Well, yes. I mean, we've already seen some of some of that in in the macro data. So if you look at the U.S. Uh, GDP data for the second quarter, you know, it's down a massive thirty three percent, and and even smaller, but yet more internationalized countries like Singapore, you know, down forty one percent. And this is even with stimulus programs. And and so you know, as we go forward here, you know, I think the stock market is betting on a quick recovery. But you know, you have to look at certain things uh, externally, like bad debt, bank loans, credit card debt. Uh, how late are accounts receivables, what kind of bankruptcies are happening in which industries. But you can also look for industry surveys. Uh, the EU ATC recently did a, a small uh, did a survey uh, across uh, several associations. It did hit highlight that the smaller businesses were being hit hardest, which was something that was echoed in a in a survey that Slater did across four associations in June. Beyond this, you know, there is market research out there, not just from the language industry and elsewhere, but you could also look for other anecdotal uh, sources of data like like job hiring to see if job hiring really comes back strongly here that would be a very very positive sign i, I agree with you but it's also pretty confusing if you look at all these numbers coming in. For example, you refer to the stock market, but that's not a representation of reality. Um, I mean, the stock market is right now not tied to Main Street anymore. And the research and data coming in from all these different providers, we don't know how uh, representative or realistic they are because the situation changes on a weekly basis. Where does the owner of a translation company go to make strategic decisions? Well, to make strategic decisions, uh, I mean, it really depends on how they're set up. Uh, you know, larger organizations would have a more formal process in this regard. But in, in, in truth, at the end of the day, even if you're a small company, you know, you have to be looking at this situation. But you also, will, I think, intuitively know what's going on in, with your business and and. You know, you should be talking to your customers, not just talking to your salespeople. Uh, and, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a small, medium or large company. I think speaking with your customers, they're, they're going to give it to you straight and they're going to tell you what they need and, and they're going to tell you where they're hurting. And, you know, if you can provide a solution with them. And I think, you know, if you really want to put your finger on the pulse, uh, your clients will, will be the best source of that information. Absolutely. I know you touched on this a bit earlier, but our industry is pretty large when it comes to size and uh, the volume of work, basically. We have uh, LSCs that are very large, or as you call them, the super LSCs or super LSPs. Then we have these uh, several tiers of companies that follow them. Do these bands of language companies experience different types of threats and challenges? What are they? Well, I mean, uh, yes, they, they do. We, we've tried to segment these uh, these players in in our language service provider index, the Slater LSPI. Right. Um, you touched on the largest, which are which we have called the super agencies, and they're two hundred million dollars of revenue or more. And you know, in terms of the opportunities, they're, they're much better positioned for large global multinationals that need follow the sun types of services, uh, might need deeper technical solutions, and so there's both opportunity there. But you know, larger companies tend to also have a higher built-in cost basis and, and often are somewhat less flexible. The super tanker doesn't turn as fast as the tugboat. So, um, you know, then you look at the leaders, which are the next, you know, sort of level down. Right. There's a lot of activity happening there. There's a lot of opportunity in terms of companies expanding uh, geographically, in terms of companies acquiring other companies uh, in, in, and entering new verticals that way. And, and then we also look at the, the what we would call the challengers and, and the boutique companies. Some boutique companies are, are doing 
doing very, very well. But but if you look at a recent survey of the German Language uh, Translation Association, you know, 80% of the uh, LSPs they spoke to are, are, are struggling, are, are seeing down revenues in the first half. The hardest hit are those, you know, with revenues uh, annually of less than 250,000 and, and also uh, uh, 1 million. So it, you know, if you're a smaller company, if you don't have a much of a differentiation, if you are, you know, uh, doing sort of general translation and localization, and you don't have technology to help you improve that operating efficiency quickly, then you're probably more exposed than a lot of the other players. And uh, from what I've heard uh, from my conversations with other uh, translation company owners, that is uh, a legitimate concern. And a lot of them are trying to turn from that generalist, you know, view of the world into a specialist type of company. And is it too late now to start specializing and offering their services for uh, specific industries? Personally, I don't think so. I don't think the race is ever over. Um, And, you know, unless, um, unless, you know, you're trying to start a search engine and compete with Google, then, you know, maybe that's a different scenario. But if you actually look at this industry, the gaming industry is growing very rapidly and has benefited actually from the pandemic in terms of um, end user consumption. So has media and, and uh, but perhaps a bit more mixed is e-learning. So there are, there are niches to look at. Um, Within e-commerce, uh, you know, there's there's been some reports that credit card companies are doing well. Uh, also, technology companies, uh, especially if they're geared towards uh, e-commerce or online or digital, are also doing well. So, so in these regards, there there are opportunities uh, for growth, and, and and there will always be competition within those sectors. But in your own in your own city, there's probably a thousand Italian restaurants. But if you're the best Italian restaurant, you're going to succeed. And then and then also, you know, there are more robust sectors uh, like life sciences or some of the regulated industries. Um, the public sector is not going to go away. The courts need need to operate. Immigration needs to operate. There's been more mixed in uh, you know certain areas like healthcare. Right. So, so you know, while the pandemic may fill the the emergency rooms, uh, you know, elective surgeries and other types of treatment uh, are down in markets like the U.S. And then, then, of course, there are there are some areas that have been hurt um, quite badly, like travel and hospitality or in-person interpretation. Um, but I'd like to be optimistic and think there will be a lot more normalcy in 2021 and beyond. So I think you know these these industries will recover to some degree. Um, and so in each of these, depending on your area of expertise and your client base and what they're willing to do with you, uh, I think there's opportunity. But but there's certainly the, some industries that are presenting more opportunity than others. And some of them like gaming, you know, you can't enter. It's just at what scale and at what size. I mean, there are some dominant players in some of these spaces like keywords, but there's still, you know, market share to be gained. Yeah, absolutely. And it also comes down to whether you can invest into building those new processes and technologies to handle these new industries or segments of work. Indeed. And, and, and you know, that's the, the, the running challenges. However, you know, in the middle of a crisis, very often the cost of these technologies and the cost of hiring staff and other costs like, you know, rent or, or other things uh, come down. So if you're going to reposition yourself or reset yourself, you know, the, the cost situation is, is likely to improve. If we look at the big picture, Andrew, uncertainty is everywhere. We don't know if that client that hired us to deliver so much work uh, will still be in the market come January. Which industries are largely affected by the pandemic and lockdowns that could trigger headwinds for LSE supplying them? Well, I mean, we, we touched on, I just touched on some of them in the last last question in terms of like travel, hospitality, airlines, uh, you know, here in Asia, Air Asia was regularly considered to be one of the best, most innovative budget airlines. And, you know, if it doesn't get, you know, some emergency financing, it could very well go out of business. You know, there, there there are there are segments like um, uh, you know airlines, for instance, and I was talking about AirAsia, which is a, a very innovative, budget-oriented airline that was doing incredibly well. Um, and 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 yet now, because of the, you know, the lockdown on international travel, is on the verge of bankruptcy and, and, and immediate need for immediate financing. So. You know, if you are an LSP uh, and someone, you know, an airline is your your customer, uh, you really need to think about, you know, are they paying you on time? Are they even responding to your emails and phone calls? And what, what is the likelihood of, of bad debt in this situation? Well, but you could also argue that the industries that have been worst hit for such as hospitality, they would be the ones investing more money to get back on their feet. And part of that, that funding will probably go towards uh, translation localization. I think, uh, as again, I said, uh, travel will return. Uh, it's just a matter of when. 
Right. Um, here in Thailand, uh, the domestic tourism is on the increase. They've been offering uh, very uh, special rates to the Thais. Uh, I'm not sure about the situation in the Europe or, or the U.S., but one of the wonderful things about business is, you know, you, you can reset your prices to find the right price point. You're also talking about trying to reach out to different audience segments. And I think there's a well-proven case in, in, in localization where you can, you know, assess the potential uh benefit of investing in this. And you actually see this to some degree uh, with the OTT media companies right now, uh, taking their existing libraries and, 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 and expanding them into you know, slightly more peripheral markets and, and getting more revenue out of that content that already exists. So if you were to look at that and say, you know, could you do that in, in travel and hospitality? I, I think that will be there. The travel and hospitality will return. And I think it's not all bad news. For example, if you're looking at tourism uh, as an area that most countries that rely on tourism, they will be investing quite a bit of money and that content needs to be localized uh, to attract people to come in and visit those countries. So I think companies that are in that segment shouldn't be as worried, but we have to find innovative ways to um, to tap into that funding that's uh, coming down, you know, within those sectors. I would agree with you. And, 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 and then we've also spoken with some language service providers that they, they have been in certain segments like in-person interpretation or uh, exposed travel and hospitality. And, you know, they thought about the skill sets they have and, again, how they can transfer them into, into another industry um, and try to diversify, if you will, um, and become more resilient in this regard. Absolutely. What do you consider to be key matrix and drivers that language companies should keep an eye on to ride this current crisis? We obviously need to keep an eye on profitability, but what else should be watched at this point? Well, I mean, profitability is is the end result of, of looking at a great number of things. So we discussed a little bit earlier about some of the external data, but in terms of internal data, and, and I mentioned talking to your customers and your sales teams before, you know, there there are certain things to keep an eye out, like what is the average time to close a deal? You may recall SDL reported in its uh, last set of results that they were starting to see longer decision-making cycles. The other thing to look at is deal size and deal compos- composition and, you know, termination clauses. And it would probably be wise to review your existing contracts for those terms termination clauses to see what risks might be out there if somebody were to to exercise them against you and what your downside may be, just just as a protective measure. Um, other things to look at are your, your accounts receivable. Uh, are they getting longer? Um, you know, is the prospect of bad debt or default looking more likely? So you have to look at all of these things. Ultimately, cash flow is very, very important. So if you look at a company like Straker, they report, uh, you, you know, on the stock exchange about cash receipts rather than revenue. It's, it's kind of an odd concept, but it's also quite relevant in terms of, you know, keeping the business going. They are also a, a slightly loss-making company. So, you know, they talk about the drawdown on cash. So noticing your cash positions, uh, what access to capital you might have, whether it's short-term credit lines or longer-term credit lines. One of the things that I advocated quite uh, actively early in this pandemic is, is to get whatever credit lines you can in place place because very often banks will squeeze out the smaller customers first. So it's important to get as much of your credit in line uh, as, as a stopgap uh, to ride out uh, any particular difficult period. So all of these things ultimately, you know, through cash flow result in the bottom line. And, and I think the last thing is general best business practices, you know, will, will you know, get you there. Strong account management, strong project management, uh, listening to your clients, um, and then trying to be as efficient as possible. And, and you've touched on then uh, investing in technology where appropriate. Absolutely. That's great information that you just shared. Uh, in terms of uh, whether companies have experienced differences in terms of uh, how they were paid in the past, accounts receivable uh, versus now, there are delays happening and so forth. Did the stimulus package from the U.S. government play a role in alleviating some of those pain points? What about other countries that didn't have as much money to finance as a stimulus? Are companies experiencing different things there? Well, well, again, you know, uh, I'm not sure I'm able to get quite to the specific of your question, except to look at, you know, some of the surveys that I mentioned earlier. So EA, EU ATC had, had also worked with a number of associations uh, to look at what, what's happening there. And, and, and again, more broadly, I think, you know, uh, some of the stimulus packages you mentioned were there to help you know, keep staff on board. In, in the UK, I think there was also a payroll program uh, as well as in the US. But some of these payroll programs have expired. And so I think, you know, uh, whether you're thinking about your clients and, and, and whether they're still going to be operating or, or yourself, I think the stimulus period is, is coming to an end. Uh, I wouldn't 
look to rely on it anymore. In, in Switzerland, there there were government loans that were extended to companies, but by and large, um, you know, a lot of companies didn't take them up, or if they did, they, they've weathered through the storm and, and and they're they're handing the loans back. So so in terms of uh, you know how people are faring, if you're in a country and none of these things were available, like like Thailand, well, you just you just have to get on with it. So some of the the uh, language service providers that I've spoken to say in Asia, you know, they've experienced uh, you know. Uh, challenges uh, they, they, in, right. in terms of sales they've experienced uh, a drop in revenue and as i said it sort of followed the the pattern that i described earlier april and may were quite severe uh june was a respite uh july uh, you know a partial recovery so people are more probably optimistic now uh, about a, a survivable recovery and and, and you know looking for areas of growth that we've touched on uh then i think uh, perhaps more pessimistic at this time Okay, so let's talk about technology. We touched on this earlier. Our industry was late in adopting technology and to say the least, very slow in implementing it. Artificial intelligence and machine learning has been, on the other hand, uh, adopted quite quickly. How is that playing out in the overall health of the uh, translation industry today? Well, I I think it's playing out quite well, to be honest. Uh, uh, um, You know, when I I joined the industry, there was still some healthy skepticism about neural machine translation, you know, in 2016, 2017, uh, there was a lot of criticism and a lot of initial pushback, particularly from uh, people who might have to use it amongst translators in particular. But, you know, 2018 and 2019 have seen uh, increased adoption and and a variety of uh, tool sets developed um, and their integration with other tools enhanced. So in some ways, as you just touched on, nobody uses the N anymore. It's just machine translation. And uh, it's been um, developed in a, in a variety of ways. You have you know, in-house solutions like an SDL. Uh, you have um, off-the-shelf or cloud solutions from, from Google and others. Um, and so, so the adoption uh, from large and, and medium-sized language service providers is, is already well underway. Um, and it's moved beyond that into evaluation scores and accuracy and which models. And, you know, recently, uh, Intento has been, and others have been looking at, um, you know, how different models perform in, in different scenarios with different data sets. So it's really well in use um, and, and I think, you know, it's how it's being integrated and applied. Uh, the other development that's there is a lot of the discussion about human in the loop and post-editing and, right. and, and all of these things. And uh, so so the bottom line is, I, I think, between this and some of the interesting areas of investment that you touched on earlier, uh, that we touched on earlier, technology is, is really being, I think, more embraced more rapidly uh, here in 2020. And in your opinion, and do you think that there is room for a subcategory of services and products within the technology sector within the larger localization industry? Well, you're already seeing that to some degree. Um, I mean, uh, as one example, SyncWords is is trying to do, you know, real-time transcription and, 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 and therefore subtitling. And I think, you know, they were, they were supporting uh, New York State during its uh, pandemic and, and daily press conferences. There, there are other examples, uh, you know, in, in interpreting where, you know, a solution like Boost Lingo um, initially envisioned for healthcare and OPI and VRI uh, is now being, you know, sort of adopted in situations with uh, police and immigration and other situations. Um, but but that's just, that's a very narrow, you know, solution. And then you have, you know, companies like Kudo, which, you know, is, is just raise some capital to to provide uh, its its solution you know a multilingual uh, conferencing solution so so there's lots of lots of niches there that people are investing in that that could be developed ultimately in the long run larger companies tend to acquire these various solutions and put them into a solution set and start to apply perhaps a more Accenture-like model, a, 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 a more comprehensive solution where they bring in various components that might serve the client best. While we are still uh, on the subject of technology, 2020 is a very special year, I guess, uh, because 5G is supposed to materialize and, and come our way. Do you see 5G playing a role in opening new doors for the localization industry in ways that we haven't thought of? I mean, perhaps I haven't really looked at, at 5G itself that that deeply, uh, but I, I can tell you that you know every time um, you know internet. Uh, bandwidth has expanded. There's been another great leap forward. So, uh, what innovation might come from that? I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, 
It could be in areas uh, like virtual reality, perhaps, you know, if you were to speculate, maybe even with like conferencing and, and you know, if we, if we couldn't, can't do the same scale of, of uh, conferencing in the near term, that type of bandwidth and, and other uh, tools and applications could facilitate, you know, a virtual world uh, of conferencing, perhaps in terms of uh, training and development, you know, virtual uh, reality and, and that type of bandwidth may also prove beneficial. Maybe in telehealth, I, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, you might get consultancy and all kinds of imaging transferred around the world. So uh, it's not really my area of expertise, but but I, I would say the short answer would be, I would say yes, technology has a way of making things leap forward. Absolutely. Let's continue on that topic. So technology is an enabler. It opens doors for new opportunities. But we also have things such as regulation, GDPR in, in, in Europe, and we have um, all types of regulation related to privacy and so forth in, in the US and other countries. How do you see those playing out for translation companies? Do you think the the cross-border transfer of content will become an issue, where, which will impede the ability of translation companies to do their job as they used to do before and be profitable right right now those 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 things already exist in a variety of scenarios i mean within media you just can't take any movie and, and distribute it around the world without perhaps thinking about local editing requirements i i think um in terms of uh, other other restrictions like gdpr well no matter what the, the government regulation is uh, whatever the compliance requirement is ultimately companies have to comply. And so they tend to work towards the most strict requirement globally, because then that will absolve the problem for, for other less restrictive countries. So you can play to that strict privacy uh, regime, if you wish. Um, and, and, you know, if GDPR is that strict privacy regime, then being in compliance there will, shouldn't impede you from, from operating in most other markets. I see. Let's talk about technology adoption. I know you touched upon this uh, earlier, but larger uh, translation companies or the super LSEs have welcomed adoption of MT or machine translation with open arms. Smaller ones or the smallest ones are still thinking about it or using some of the off-the-shelf solutions. Some of them are going and using things uh, that are publicly available, which I think is a bad idea. How do you see that playing out into the future? Are there going to be solutions that will be unique for different types of content? Do you see machine translation become a substitute for uh, the freelancers that translation companies are using uh, in, in certain areas. For example, if we're uh, translating low-priority content, how do you see that happening going forward? The short answer right now is MT is not going to replace uh, the need for, for real-world or human uh, review in, in, in a number of situations. We just covered uh, in here in Thailand where Facebook uh, and its machine translation um, took a very innocuous post uh, by the government to, about the king's birthday, um, and it didn't. Whatever the translation that came out the other side, it was deemed, uh, you know, offensive, and and so they have had to switch off their machine translation system here. So even though social media might be viewed as uh, low risk um, or low value, there are consequences if the translation is wrong, and it's you know it's going to be impossible to to translate every post on on Facebook in every language. So you do need machine translation, but the more and more you go up into in, in particular regulated industries, you're just not going to be able to replace it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's there's a great discussion and, and a lot of activity going on in terms of, uh, with people a lot smarter than I am, for sure, uh, talking about, um, you know, in which industry segments, with which clients, with which data sets, do which tools work the best? Uh, and even within, uh, you know, their, their own client base, you know, companies like SDL have to look at these things and have different uh, machine uh, translation engine set up for each client. Absolutely. And, uh, and and then there's the difference between language pairs and all of this. And and uh, I, again, I think there's been some some writings about how different language pairs might perform on different different engines. So it, it's incredibly complex. And I think that's the service that you pay for. And that's that's a tremendous service, because if you ultimately can can deliver that service efficiently, then that's a, that's a tremendous competitive advantage that you're, you're, I don't think your client's going to look to uninstall you very quickly if you're if you're if you're cracking that nut for them on that note let me ask you about the evolution of content development right now technology is involved in content conversion i guess from one language to another but do you think technology will also enable content creation and can the language industry play a role in that well we, we did have uh at Bussy of quill speak at SlaterCon remote and he touched on this a bit and and, and the ability of ai to create content and, and you know there's already been you know for years now 
talking about baseball scores or, or stock market, you know, results and, and somewhat more formulaic types of content being created and how the technology is getting smarter and, and better. And so, so, you know, I'm not really sure where that is at right now, but I would say that um, in terms of actually taking content and looking at, you know, rather a straight translation versus trans, you know, just uh, localizing it or, or trans creation or, or actually having original content with the same mindset, brand, right. personality, values. You know, there, there's certainly uh, in, in, in a number of areas that, that need for uh, origination, if you will, of content. So I don't think AI is going to replace transcreation or, or uh, origination anytime soon. Okay, so let's continue talking about technology. It is no secret that our industry is very labor intensive, whether we are talking about managing projects at language company level or performing the actual translation. There's so many areas that automation can play a role and bring efficiency. How do you see that happen going forward? Well, we've touched on a couple of these areas already. One is machine translation and trying to understand, you know, how can I use it to to with, with the data sets that I have or my customer has and, and, and how can I... Uh, you know, reduce the amount of original translation and, 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 and what's in the translation memory and how does it feed back into that. And so I think just the operating efficiencies from machine translation as you try to work through that, if you can get those efficiencies, uh, then, you know, there's been a lot of uh, advancements, I think, over the past year or so in integrating uh, that with some of the uh, translation management systems. And then XTM has also recently announced, you know, its interlanguage vector space solution, uh, which is also using neural networks and trying to approximate, you know, the closeness of source and target uh, words and within a segment. And, you know, so all of these things are designed to try to enhance, you know, the translators, the reviewers, the post editors productivity. So I think these these advancements will continue. There's there's room for improvement. And then and then we also touched on other areas of technology, you know, transcription into subtitling or, you know, cloud based dubbing and how the quality of recording in different home studios is being improved or interpreting and RSI and VRI, or even in payments, you know, within the payment system for translators embedded within SmartCat. So there's lots of ways to improve productivity using technology. Uh, and there's a lot of people making some very smart bets in this regard. You see uh, the language translation company of the future evolving. So you touched on this, that there will be a lot of efficiencies uh, within the production of work, but at the same time on other processes that, that are manual, like uh, project management, for example, there are lots of tasks that could be automated. Same with sales. Um, you could automate uh, quite a, a bit actually using artificial intelligence and maybe develop that uh, smart intelligence where you could do some prospecting. It will save you a lot of time and so forth. So uh, do you see that our industry is ready for that type of an evolution to, because historically we have been very late in adopting technology? I think it's it's happening now. Uh, when you look at uh, the various solutions, uh, the translation management solutions, and whether they have a business component as well, and how they're integrating with uh, through APIs with other technologies, I think this is this is all happening, and people are looking at that entire workflow. Project managers are really at at the crux of that, and 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 so you know part of the challenges that I think still exist, which are difficult to go away, are you know which solutions you're using because of your clients, and and what tools are they using. So if you're an LSP and you have have to you know choose or use more than one tool because your clients are using these tools um i think that's a practical challenge that's that might be difficult to go away but in terms of that that workflow this competition in technology is you know it's already making it headways and, and the market ultimately chooses the winners there Absolutely. Back to machine translation. In order to build a robust engine, uh, something that helps you a lot, that's intelligent enough, you need massive amounts of data. There's no uh, equal to Google or to the Amazon corpuses within our industry. But do you see that as an impediment for adoption of uh, machine learning widely within our industry? Well, well, I think I think you're asking the wrong guy about this technology. What I what I will say is, you know, you look at uh, guys like XTM where they're 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 pulling in you know, a large volume of data from the internet, but then you'd have to ask, you know, in each scenario, is it is it very specific to that client in that industry? Uh, and how close is it perhaps, say, to their jargon and other things that may matter and say in terms of branding or marketing or other other things you might be doing or, or industry jargon? So I'm not really the expert to answer that question. But, but, you know, you have had also discussion about just the overall volume of data coming down to train these these. 
uh, engines. So, so I think, you know, to be honest, uh, perhaps you could have a guest on the show that really specializes in this area and really get into the nuts and bolts of it. But, but the overall trend uh, seems to be that these engines are getting smarter and they're able to do do more. And of course, then that content is also curated between uh, what you have, what you started with, uh, what's been uh, translated on top of that as part of a project, what gets fed back into the mix and, and the translation memory, and, and then this rinse, wash, and repeat. So I think, you know, uh, the trend of, of better uh, scores and better improvement and, and better operational efficiency, it all seems to be moving in this direction. Let's discuss something different now. Let's discuss the issues and concerns at the end client or end user level. Tell me what are the top five issues related to localization and translation that keeps localization managers at large enterprise clients awake at night? Well, it, it's, it's, it's kind of the flip side of what we were talking about earlier in terms of what industry are they in? Right. Um, and you know how well are they doing? Um, I think I think one of the the first challenges has been how much they work remotely. So I think Mark Zuckerberg was one of the major tech leaders who gave a presentation, or gave a staff meeting, and he opened it up to the world and he talked about how they have moved you know their staff uh, into a much more re- remote footing. And and that would be the the first the first challenge that a lot of companies have worked through, and and then they look to how can they engage and collaborate and operate better. I think you know in terms of then the challenges is, is how well is you know the company doing itself, um, and and you you have seen layoffs in certain sectors. I don't want to single out um, Airbnb for any particular reason, but you know they've had to really look at their their business model short term and you know there were layoffs there as well and so you know uh, you have to think about restructuring and change management and these types of issues and then within that you have to also think about well where are there areas of innovation or where, where are the opportunities which we touched on a little bit earlier and how, how do you how do you propose those so even before the pandemic there were these discussions about you know what's the business case I can put forward how do I how do I convince my bosses to take a risk we had Anna Schlegel speak about this in, in Slater Constance San Francisco uh, two years ago, you know, these bread and butter uh, challenges, they don't go away. How do I get the company to take risk? In in some ways, um, companies now may be very risk adverse because they're, they're, they're taking a wait and see attitude. But now may be the best opportunity in this environment to, to take that risk. So it's about working within your management and your team and your structure to, to, le- to deliver change and innovation. And you touched on this right now in terms of the different challenges clients face in different industries. Some of them, obviously, those challenges can be interpreted as opportunities and so forth. I know that companies that used to manage conferences, for example, had to switch to online uh, or cancel events en masse. And that has resulted in devastating losses for our on-site interpreting industry. What does it mean for our industry in order to adapt to these moving changes within the client industries? Well, I mean... It has been extraordinary, the impact in some of these industries, in the hospitality industry, in in-person conferences. Uh, you know, a third of Slater's revenue was also in-person events. Uh, so so you have to look at what you're doing and what is what it's capable. I think large expos uh, have been very, you know, difficult, if not impossible, to, to shift online. Although there was a, uh, a major expo in, in China, uh, I think this week, that, that had about 80,000 visitors on the first day. And, and so, you know, I do think they will come back eventually, but but in the short term uh, or on a six or twelve month horizon, you know that 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 has been put off. Uh, more modest size online conferences have worked hard to adapt. One of the larger scale examples out there is probably CB Insights, which uh, does a, a range of conferences in technology across a range of industries. They they've been trying to work through the networking aspect of it with a one on one video solution. Uh, within our industry, there are others uh, that are are attempting other types of networking, but networking itself exhibitions itself proving a bit more challenging to to replicate online right so so content becomes key speakers become key uh, and, and people are still working through some of the formats and i think they're finding them themselves there webinars have taken off uh smaller scale uh webinars training e-learning i think those are opportunities they're not as large they're not as glorious but the flip side of of not being able to do an online conference. If you do an online conference and you look at your net profit margin of 15, 20, or 25%, if you're able to still get some ticket sales, if you're still able to get some sponsorship, and as long as the drop in all of that isn't 75%, well, your, your cost base is completely almost evaporated. You have staff, you have other costs, you have marketing, but, but you know, this temporary drop-off may be survivable. 
And, and so you have to look at where can you get revenues from what type of activities, even though it might be intensely competitive and you just have to, you know, content is king, as they say, yeah, and absolutely. distribution is king. So you have to, you, you know, you, you have to adapt. And that's one of the reasons why we've been also doing, you know, more more training and development as well as SlaterCon Remote and adapting and seeing how our conferences could be translated online. Yeah, well, I attended the Lock World uh, last week, actually, while the content was amazing. What I noticed was, uh, this is my personal observation and, and probably you'll find it helpful, that a lot of attendees that showed up there they were not there to hear bad news while there were content or uh, some presentations talking about how the industry is going to change, how, you know, how much problems there are. And even the keynote focused on, on caring for each other. It was basically a grim feeling among some of the, the people who attended. I didn't feel that way particularly, but that's the feedback I got. So as you said, content is king. And, and if you introduce relevant content to challenges that are, people are facing today, I think you will drive a lot more participation. Well, that's what we've been trying to to think and i think that's the nature of business media in general you're looking for people who you are who are who are leading you know ceos like um, stuart green and zoo and talking about practical situations like uh, ensuring quality from you know a cloud uh, in a cloud dubbing solution you're you're looking for practical solutions this is one of the reasons why i wanted to test design thinking to think about innovation or right. change management uh, and, and and there are other other bread and butter practical things that need focus and refreshing like digital marketing so digital marketing goes across all things so if you don't share something that people can use and you can't offer the the benefit of networking anymore or or it's vastly reduced then then it's going to be tough so i think you have to really think about what the customers need to, to, in order to do to do business, and, and and they're looking for case studies, they're looking for examples, they're they're looking for people who can share their expertise. So the content is still there. It's it's just a little bit tougher to to do the lead gen and the. Uh, networking that people want to do. I think there's a real hunger for that. While we are at it, I mean, it's a good segue to move on to my next question. This this COVID situation changed the world, not just in our industry. Everything has changed. How do you see business development for translation companies going forward? I mean, the face-to-face meetings will be off for a long time. Phone calls are still happening. But how does the customer psyche play a role right now? What kind of a mood they're in? What type of communication would like they like to hear? Uh, networking was a great opportunity in the past where we used to go to conferences and meet people who were relevant to us. But how do you see business development changing for us? Well, I think I think part of the answer is cultural. I mean, if you look at markets like the U.S., code calling, uh, you know, listening over the phone, uh, you know, and then and then it's segue into digital marketing. It's it's probably more open. It's more receptive, and people will take take a look and actually we've heard from you know companies like MemoQ and others that their businesses in the US are are doing well so so you know whereas other markets where relationship is very important the desire to meet face to face to really get to know the person first rather than take a small commercial risk and, and do a test you know it may be more challenging to do business development online uh, you know digital marketing may be a bit more challenging however in the overall context i think um Content marketing is is now more important than ever. Having not just your your brand messaging out there, but but um, putting pieces of information that people can use. It might be uh, a case study, it might be a white paper, it might be a thought leadership article, it might be something on your blog. But I think uh, getting content out there that people can then refer to, offering something back, and and then then if you're looking to capture data, get an exchange. It's a long, hard road, but the content marketing pathway does yield results. There's a wide variety of tools out there to do that. In fact, I I don't want to plug this, but we're about ready to release a sales and marketing report at the end of this week talking about how to go through all of this and and the tools that are available out there from everything from sales navigator to email management tools to these types of things and this is one of the ways we're trying to help the industry on this very question that's that's interesting i'll be looking forward to that report myself but while we are at it i mean we have to reinvent ourselves from time to time um, in order to to be relevant so clay christensen in his book the innovator's dilemma uh, actually says that we can either uh, reinvent ourselves or disrupt. And disruption can happen either for uh, something that's new or some the low end of the market. How do you see disruption playing a role in our industry? It's not very common that things get disrupted in our industry. Do you agree? Well, you know, 
I, I probably am more in the front, the other, the other solution in terms of reinventing yourself. You asked me about how I got in the translation and localization industry in the thread. You know, I'm an analyst by nature. I look at business models and solutions and how people do things. And then I apply this for making recommendations on which companies to buy and sell to actually talking with people smarter than myself in, in creative and technical solutions and delivering digital marketing solutions to multinationals to then finding myself in, in business media. But the common thread is looking within myself and what I can offer and how I can adapt it to what the needs of the market are. So so I'm probably more in the reinvent yourself cap. Um, it, you know, if I were to give a, an example in uh, uh, the ad agency world, they haven't disappeared, uh, you know, but but there was a time when you had to hand code every HTML page for every browser version that existed out there. Now you have both off-the-shelf CMSs and you have, you know, bespoke systems that you can build for very large-scale solutions. So even in this industry with, you know, machine translation, even in uh, this, all the other technologies that are coming into play, you have a client, he's in a business, he has a certain opportunity, he has requirements, he's going to tell you what those are. Clients are the best source of information on what the market really wants, and, and they will tell you what they want or need. And, and so I, I think you know, in terms of disruption, I, I'm not sure really what the major disruption in our industry is. I agree with you. Let's move on to the subject of uh, mergers and acquisitions. I hear there is interest from private equity investors to put their money in our industry. Talk to me about that. Well, there has been for as long as I've been in this industry and probably for, for years before. One of the first speakers at our very first SlaterCon in New York in was uh, Rory Cowan, and he talked about his M&A track record, and he had won awards for M&A. And, and then, you know, private equity has been involved for, for some time. They, they see a steady growth. They see a fragmented, fragmented industry that it could be consolidated. They look at the opportunity for tech efficiencies. They look at a variety of financial engineering situations, uh, and, and so they see uh, growth. And, and, and an opportunity to make money. They've done it in a number of, of different ways. Um, you have, uh, in the media space, you had uh, and Shamrock Capital and Altor go into BTI, SoftBank and Uno, they came together in the new Uno. VCs like P72 invested in Unbabble's Series C. Uh, Carlyle recently went into Memsource. So both the language service providers and the technology players are attracting attention. Part of the challenge from some of the earlier players is, you know, they've been in there for about five years and, and how do they exit? And that's been a bit more challenging, but there has been some innovative deal making going on. So the, the UNO deal is one of those. But but the underlying fundamentals of the industry are what attracts that investment. And I think it's going to continue. I, I don't see it going away at all. It's been very strong for the last three years. And uh, it still looks very robust right here in the summer. You just touched on this. Does the uh, M&A landscape for the, the language industry, the translation industry, look healthy in the next 12 to 24 months? What does the appetite look like? I, I think so. If you look at uh, TransPerfect's recent results, even though you know it's a very large company, it's been growing steadily for years, they, they, they got even a, a small lift um, uh, from, from M&A transactions they did earlier. Similar key keywords uh, and and Straker have reported you know similar benefits to, to M and A. So large, medium, or even small, it's a way to to build growth, um, to expand into markets, uh, to acquire technologies. So I, I think it's going to be very happy. In fact, we even reported on some very very small deals um, in Switzerland where uh, two small LSPs came together, um, and it wouldn't wouldn't have been a very large deal at all. So so I think at every segment. Uh, M&A is happening. We've been we've been averaging in our coverage 50 to 60 transactions a year, and there's there's more than that. There's there's others that are unreported, and then there's other investments in other technology areas. So this is is a very attractive and a very active space even right now. And I think the next 12 to 24 months is going to be still very active. Exciting. Let's talk about business models. Do you see that LSE business models changing anytime soon? The per word rates changing, or what will drive that change? Uh, well, you touched on two different things, and, and, and earlier you asked about, you know, uh, strategy. So there, there, there have been different sort of uh, strategic approaches taken amongst some of the larger players, and it just kind of highlights um, that it's up to you to decide, you know, as, as a business owner, how you think you can make money and best serve your clients. For example, TransPerfect have, have sort of talked about sort of a, a, an Accenture type solutions-oriented service model where they're looking at different industries and you're trying to think what is a, a comprehensive solution they can provide 
you know, with translation and localization at its core, there's underlying technologies that they provide uh, to support that whole process. RWS, um, you know, they started in a very strong, uh, built a very strong business in a, a regulated regu- in, in IP in a regulated industry, and then they expanded into life science through LUTs, and, and then and then later in technology. So they've built out different verticals through acquisition, and they have a nice portfolio there. And and then keywords, keywords um, became very strong in in uh, the gaming. But it also then became much more integrated within its vertical offering and acquiring services in in the front end in terms of game design and also afterwards in terms of uh, customer support. And and, and so, you know, then they've been looking at the shift to game to media and they also acquired Kantan MT to to provide more technological support, particularly in MT. And and, and so, you know, those are three different models altogether. Iuno would be more of a media roll-up. Um, Lionbridge is a recast in some degree. They, they've always been strong. They've always had data annotation, but they've always been seen as a language service provider. Right. But if you look at their content and their marketing, they've been highlighting their strengths in other areas. Um, so, so each one of these companies is making a choice, focusing on a strategy, and working at it irrespective of what, what madness might be going on around them. Let me, uh, as we are uh, reaching towards the end of our interview, let me ask you about your advice for the language industry. What's your message? What would you advise them? You, you mentioned in the lock world, you know, the difficulties that people may be going through or, or how this can uh, affect people's health, their mental health. So I'd say focus on your health and well-being and happiness most of all. There, there are crises. There are situations where things can be, seem very, very tough. Um, I've been through them myself in different industries when the Asian financial crisis blew up and you have to reinvent yourself. So focus on your family, focus on your health, uh, focus on your staff. They're very, very important. They're the ones uh, working with you shoulder to shoulder, making sure the clients are well served. I always advocate pay your staff first um, before anyone else. And uh, then as you sort of touched on, Tekken is an enabler. So looking at what is available to help you be more competitive. And, and within that context, listen to your clients. Your clients are going to tell you what they want and what they need and what their situation is. And so, um, you know, try to view this as an opportunity to become leaner, uh, more competitive, um, and and where can you grow and capture market share? So, so stay positive and keep keep working it. There's a lot of growth opportunity that I still think, as I mentioned earlier, the medium and long term uh, growth prospects of this industry are very bright. Well, that's very good to know. And thanks for that uh, candid advice. What should we expect from Slater in the next year? Please share some information on your own plans. Well, uh, I, I'm pleased to report that, you know, uh, we also have been growing, thankfully, through the mid-year, uh, and our revenues are up. Um, the website and the newsletters are performing well, but we want to try to enhance the, the user experience and see if we can make some enhancements in the website. The research model we introduced last year with subscriptions, uh, you know, a flexible model of reports versus uh, subscriptions is working out very well. Uh, we want to try and you know increase the the volume of those reports um, and, and and make them more relevant. Uh, so so I hope we can uh, make some announcements before the year on on that. And then we touched on you know uh, events, and I've always loved our our real world events, but we've had shifted online. Uh, you know we, we've we've moved some of the single sponsor client roundtables online for online lead generation. Uh, we've done some training, which has been received, and so we're evaluating right now what can be done in 2021 and whether or not in-person will return or not. I, I think there may be an opportunity for smaller uh, in-person events, but we'll have to see. But overall, I hope to have some some announcements for you and the market uh, that are much more exciting on the events front by the end of the third quarter. Well, I'm excited to hear those. Thank you for all your insights and sharing your deep knowledge of the industry with us, Andrew. I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I hope we can continue to touch bases and hear from you in the future. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Well, thank you very much, Sultan, for having me. I really enjoy your podcast. I think some of the speakers and the content you're presenting are great. So please keep it up. And I look forward to listening to future podcasts. Thank you very much. As always, I'm going to review three products for this episode. The products I have chosen are relevant to our language service companies. The first product I'm going to review today is Tableau. 
It's a commercially free software that allows anyone to publish interactive data visualizations to the web. It is a great software used to learn about the trends in data within your organization or to make any type of data available publicly. There are alternatives as well, but Tableau is the market leader. I will rank Tableau 9 out of 10 for relevance and ease of use. Google Trends is second on our list today. It provides data on what people are searching for on the internet. You can use this tool to perform market research and analyze trends and track the volume of searches on things that you're interested in, such as translation or interpreting services. It allows you to filter this data based on geography or time. In addition, it also allows you to dig deeper about other topics that may be related or queries for searches that may fall into the same category, helping you identify patterns and uh, language or wordings that users most likely use to look for for your products or services. I'm going to rank Google Trends as 10 out of 10 in its category. Third on my list for today is HubSpot. It is a marketing, sales, and service software platform that helps businesses grow. Designed for inbound sales, it offers a number of free tools. However, if your needs increase, then you can move on to some of their paid plans. I certainly see the value of HubSpot for translation companies. Some may find it a bit overkill. I suggest you do your research and make sure it is a good fit like anything else in life or business. I give HubSpot a 9 out of 10. There it is. We had an amazing conversation with Andrew Smart from Slater. As you heard, our industry is in fairly good shape and uh, opportunities exist in so many areas. Keep listening to this podcast as I invite other guests who will speak to innovation, business, and future of the translation and localization service. Subscribe to the Translation Company Talk on your favorite platform and make sure to give us a rating of 5 stars. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.